yeah, I've been blessed to speak on some of the coolest stages in the world. And, you know, I'm learning more and more daily that as I share my story, as I'm honest with God and myself, sometimes you got to give God the middle finger for him to be like, yeah, it's all right. It's tough. I got you. Um, and not in a disrespectful way by any means. I mean, even Job cried out and, you know, cursed at him. Like, why me? You know, just be real with them. Be honest with them. I'm learning that as I'm honest with God and growing my business and sharing my gifts, that anything's possible. Anything's possible. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are fired up. We have Bryce McKinley, one of the most heartfelt and heart-wrenching stories I've ever laid eyes on or listened to. This man is so accomplished. He's a nine times author. They're doing 200,000 dials a month in their investing business and all kinds of things that we wouldn't even have time to get into today. This man has done so much on the investing side, but the story that he tells is so impactful because of where he started his journey in life. So Bryce, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you'll get us started by taking us into like, what was life like for you when you were younger and you were living in Southside Chicago and just start, start getting us into the story. Yeah, thanks guys, first and foremost, for having me on. You know, they, they often say that uh, when tough times come, the tough ones get going, right? Or something along that line. You know, for me, even prior to living in housing projects, I, I, I had like this completely different view of life and reality. Uh, I, you know, grew up in a very strict, almost cult-like belief system and religion and had extreme chaos and confusion and change happen. And I, I just, I think of other entrepreneurs, like how often do we go from one extreme to the next? And, and my story in that facet is not very different because in reality, we all just live different perspectives. We all have our own view of what's tough, what's hard. Some can handle harder stuff than others, right? Some can only handle X amount of pressure and stress. Uh, and for me, you know, growing up nine days out of the week, going to church and, and, and hearing all the, the stories and, and all the things, right? I thought I knew what my life would look like until my parents separated and was just complete and drastically changed overnight. And so I went from, you know, sitting on the pew nine days out of the week to hanging out doing one of two things. I mean, when you grow up in the, in the inner city or housing projects or, or any, you know, lesser, greater than, less than great neighborhood, you do one of two things and that's stay in the house and stay out of trouble or go outside and end up hanging out with the wrong crowd. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you go through these ups and downs, these hills and valleys, you know, it, one of two things happen, right? When, when you're in the house, you stay in and you just recluse. And I, I don't think that's very much different than our business, right? Uh, we often get, you know, our blinders on if we aren't reaching out to coaches or mentors or masterminds and we tend to like recluse and, and it's really lonely, you know, 
at the top, as they say, but really it's lonely being the leader that you're trying to be without leaning on others. And that's really what happened. And I didn't know that then as a, as a teenager, I, I didn't stay in the house. I, I went and hung out with the friends that I made at the bus stop, which weren't the greatest, you know, because most bus stops are on the corner and you know who hangs out on the corner in the hood, the bad guys, the bad guys. So next thing you know, I'm hanging out with kids that are two, three, five years older than me and facing, you know, a litany of criminal charges and dumb stuff that I shouldn't be here today, you know, but by the grace of God, I, I was fortunate enough to kind of surpass any felony convictions. So I have no felony convictions, just a bunch of dumb stuff as a teenager and uh, kind of had a second shot at life. I was 17, you know, facing some pretty hefty criminal charges. And in that moment, when the gavel came down and my uncle's sitting in the courtroom watching this outcome. I can, I can't imagine what was going through my family and friends mind, but my case was dismissed and my uncle grabs me by the ear and says, you're going to come live with me. And, and essentially takes me to his basement, you know, takes me home, moves me to his basement couch. And that's where I ended up finding residency over the next year, year and a half while I was getting my act together and he put me to work, man. He, he made me detail cars at a car dealership. And that's where I kind of found that there was hope outside of my environment and I could contribute to something that was greater than me. And I really fell in love with the automotive industry. And, and I had this philosophy after begging him and begging him and begging him for months and almost a year and a half on end. Like, gosh, Matt, like my, my mindset was, if I could sell dope to sh in Chicago as a teenager, I could sell trucks to farmers in Iowa, which is where this dealership was located that he moved me to. And that mentality is what gave me the opportunity because one afternoon in the middle of a snowstorm, my uncle's like, well, kid, nobody's here. It's just you and I, you sell a car today. I'll put you on the team. I'm like, let's go, let's go. And uh, by the end of the day, I'd sold two trucks and an SUV. And I was hooked. So you were able to sell a truck right away without training and without these things. I'm assuming like your experiences selling dope and being in the gangs, that type of thing really led. Can you give us an idea of what type of circumstances, environments and training, not like actual training, did you get from that experience that led you to be able to sell cars? Yeah, it's interesting. I've never had that question asked. I appreciate you asking. Most people think of organized crime as like this hodgepodge, which most of it is nowadays, but this hodgepodge of just, you know, thugs aimlessly out, you know, hustling and doing their thing. In Chicago, it's very organized. And, and there's a reason why it's called organized crime, because they have hierarchies, they have structure, they have entities that funnel money and launder money. They have certain expectations and KPIs. You have to hit so much money or this isn't your corner no more. Like I learned all of that as a teenager. The same thing we learn and apply in business today, you know, KPIs and, and marketing and expectations and holding boundaries and setting expectations, right? And, and, you know, sharing, right? Like when you look at a lot of the coaches and mentors out there giving away free product to get that lead gen, right? They call it that lead magnet. 
that's old street stuff. We give out free dope to get them hooked and then they come back for more and pay us. It's no different in business. And so those are a lot of the same transferable skills. I didn't realize it at the time. The biggest thing that I took at that point and stage of my life, Matt, was really the transferable skills of having conversations. Because I wasn't dealing with the average, you know, crackhead on the corner. I did when I first got started. I took my business into the inner city. I took my business to doctors and lawyers, and I'm having these tough conversations. You'd be surprised how many doctors and lawyers that you have appointments with are coked out of their mind because they're hating life. They make too much money. They never get to enjoy it. Their wife hates them because they're never home and they're hating life and they're drowning it with alcohol and drugs. And that's where I capitalized back then. And that transferable skill that I, I know that was easily transferred were those tough conversations. And, you know, the, how I did that that day, I remember, I, I vividly remember, I went out to the service department and grabbed a phone book because that's the service department had a phone book. I, I, I don't remember why. I just remember grabbing it. My uncle maybe told me there was one out there. I don't know. I remember grabbing a phone book and coming back into the dealership floor and sitting there and just dialing through the phone book. And next thing you know, somebody answers and tells me no. And then another one answers and tells tells me to go get lost. Another one answers and it's like, man, I was supposed to come in for an oil change. Actually, I'm like, well, gosh, come see me anyways. They're not here. Let's go test drive a truck and see if you if uh, if you like it. You know, nobody's here to sell you anything or even work on your truck. Let's go have fun. And wouldn't you know, he came by the dealership. And then another guy, you know, the second one who actually was the first purchase because he had cash was the police officer. You know, he came in. He's like, well, I've got to I'm on I'm on duty at two or three. I don't remember what time I'm on duty. I'll swing by there because I got to go by there anyways. Do it. Nobody else is out and about. Swing by. I'd love to meet you. Love it. (laughs) You know, I remember him walking in and seeing me at the time I had uh, these scars on my face, some teardrops and tattoos on my face. I remember him walking in and asking for me. I'm like, oh, that's me. How are you? <laughs> Next like, thing what? you know, he's like, yeah. <laughs> like, what's that mean? I'm like, you know what it means. I, you're an officer. Come on, man. That's not me who I am today. Thank God. Wow. And uh, that just really sparked the conversation. And next thing you know, he actually ended up buying two vehicles. He bought a truck and an SUV for his wife and the other guy bought a truck, you know? And so it, it was, it was fun. So long story short, to answer your question, the transferable skills that carried me over were really early on the conversation piece, yeah. the ability to converse. And going deeper on the management side, like in corporate America or in general sales management, they're, they're incentivizing you, they're encouraging you. And of course the stick in this example is being fired but there's no other possibilities. Now, being organized crime, following the rules is not always the thing. What was some of the incentivizing ways and some of the you know, punishments, so to speak, if you're not hitting KPIs? Was there anything beyond just you lose your corner? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many different, it, it, it's interesting. There's so many different levels, right? There's what they call a violation where, you know, somebody that's one notch above you on the rung gets to punch you in the face. There's other violations that are like team jump-ins where your, your whole set from that block, 15, 20, 30 dudes are beating the crap out of you for a certain designated time period. And there's some, you know, 
the old saying of blood in blood out, that's real. That's real. You, you violate certain rules and expectations, just like in business where you, you know, automatic grounds for termination in organized crime that happens too. You get beat up and jumped in and, and or have to do something, you know, horrendous to get in. The only way out is the same way. And it usually means you're on the other side of that. So psychologically speaking, obviously this is a podcast and we're not recommending people beat each other up in a sales environment. Nor Please don't. Right? <laughs> but I am fascinated just for the sake of thought. You've been in multiple corporate environments now. You've been in that world. What's a... Like, do the beatings produce more sales? Like, like if, if none of this was illegal and you had to have the best corporate results, like, yes, the fortunes in the follow-up, Matt, <laughs> if they, <laughs> the fortunes in the follow-up, right? They, that's what they often say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's awesome. So, all right, let's transition this a little bit. So, so you start selling some vehicles and then obviously they're probably thrilled. Your uncle's thrilled with you. Things start rolling along and moving well, kind of continue us, take us on the journey. Where does it go from there? Yeah, man, fast track within two years, I was one of the number one car salesmen in the world. Uh, even if you fast forward to the time that we're recording this, right? Early 2023, the national average of car salespersons units or cars sold per month across the board is still right around 11 to 12 cars or units a month. Unless you're doing like fleet, which means you're selling big blocks of chunks of cars to like enterprise or Hertz rent-a-car companies like that. The average person on their best day is averaging 12 cars a month. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was just in my heyday, not knowing that I was doing anything great other than my uncle telling me a good job and paying me really well, I was averaging, you know, 60, 70 cars a month. And I had a system built. I had two assistants with three offices and we were just boom, 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 boom. And it really created a, a, a buzz. It created, you know, a whirlwind of events that would change my life forever. I got recruited out of my dealership. Ford Motor Company showed up, you know, to what we thought was an inspection. They announced that they were going to be here on this day. And, you know, everybody's on their best behavior. Everybody's dressed up and here come some corporate executives from Ford Motor Company and they walk in and they ask for me. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so I don't remember where I was at the time, but I remember coming onto the showroom floor thinking maybe this is a customer. I'm getting paged to the showroom. And um, they asked if I was Bryce and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, let's go have a seat. Where's your GM? I'm like, oh, he's right there. It's my uncle. Oh, it's your uncle. Next thing you know, they're offering me a very hefty, you know, very high six-figure contract and they're wanting to leave and um, ended up negotiating a really sweet, low-figure, seven-figure contract with Ford Motor Company. Here I am, 22 years old with this contract and I didn't know what that even looked like. They were, And so that was when my first mentor or hired coach was brought into my life. They hired, they hired, I'll never forget Bill Bowden. They hired Bill Bowden to come in and, and he's since passed. But that man, him and I drove around like father and son for dang near nine months, 12 months before I ever did anything 
It was just him talking and asking me questions. And little did I know he was taking everything that I was telling him what I would do and this happened and how I did this and where I did that. He was creating this curriculum, which is now my training program for any industry, these same seven steps and five steps of business and communication is what we ended up taking and selling back to Nissan and Toyota and Honda. So now when you go by these dealerships and you see like Nissan sales certified or, you know, Ford blue oval certification sales certified, those are programs that he and I put together for the automotive industry. You know, when you drive by uh, a car dealership and you see those little trailers in the back and there's usually a couple of girls out back with one of the sales guys trying to play game and they're all out there smoking. What you don't know is that's probably some sort of like phone sales room where they're setting appointments. That was one of our processes. And so it was really cool to see and really neat to even look back now that I've been out of the industry 11, 12 years now. Well, it's been more than that, almost 15 now, uh, to see just the transformation of how the industry went from the old good old boy you meeting and having a relationship to becoming that, you know, professional sales environment where it used to have, and it still does sometimes that grimy, like sleazeball mentality around it. We created these systems and processes early on to change the way that sales happens because I believe that sales is a service. People want products and services that you have and you have to convince them that you're the best option. I truly believe that. And so sales for me is a service. And that's the place that I come from when I train and teach. Love it. And I'd love to get more into that here in a little bit. Let's carry on with the journey. So you're, you're selling a, a metric ton of cars. You get a seven-figure contract. Like, does life point upwards permanently from that point? Or what is the journey? Oh, I like? wish. I wish, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, from one mountaintop to the other, there's always a valley that you got to go through. And I unfortunately lost my wife in, in 2008. Uh, you know, she had battled drugs and alcohol for a couple of years. And that was due to a series of unfortunate events. You know, she had a previous relationship. We had a pretty open relationship. We were both very promiscuous, both very successful. Um, we had grown up together. I mean, we knew each other since we were little kids sitting on the front pew of the church. Her mom was my Sunday school teacher. We were like Bonnie and Clyde. And she had a baby with someone else and had nothing to do with us. And but when she lost that child uh, due to a whole bunch of litany of things, let's just, it was a homicide. And, and not the one that you typically think of without going into all the details. Uh, not like you normally think got shot by somebody on the street corner. No, it was a medical malpractice homicide. And so we went through these lawsuits and depositions and hearing her and her, you know, father's, you know, the son, the father of the son and these depositions and, you know, her going back and forth between us and other guys that she was with. We were... I don't know that I was devastated until after, you know, her passing, she ended up taking her life, ironically, um, Friday, June 13th, you know, it's Friday crazy 13th. that, wow. yeah, today is the 13th as we record this. It's crazy. On a Friday realize. of all things. Yeah. 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 
you know, Friday, June 13, 2008 uh, is when she passed. And man, for the next year and a half, I would lose my marbles between drugs and alcohol, dismissing seven, eight figure contracts in the corporate space and just checked out of all reality. You know, I had a cabin up in the North woods of Wisconsin, ended up going up North and just checking out doing dope and drinking and fishing all day. That was, that was my life. And, uh, ended up finding out that, and, and let me just pause there because if you're listening to this, I just shared that for some sort of reason, other than just sharing my story. Like I'm hoping that if you're in your business right now and you're in one of those valleys, just know that that shadow you're in, that shadow is being cast by a light somewhere and there's an obstacle in your way. And, and as a sales trainer, I don't like to look at objection rebuttals. I like to look at obstacles because if we do that, that means that there's more than one objective, there's, you know, other routes we can go over or under or around or plow, plow through. And so if you're listening and you're feeling like this and you're feeling desperate and you're feeling stressed, I just want to encourage you that there's light somewhere behind that obstacle, casting the shadow you're in and just keep pushing, keep pushing, dig, jump, push through whatever it is. Just don't do nothing. I want to encourage you right now. Hear me when I say that. In that moment, I, I remember in, it was March of 2010, I, I got a phone call from a young lady that I had been, you know, messing around with, having an affair, whatever. Um, we were both single, so that was fine. But she said she was pregnant. And they often say that you need to find your why. And I just, I don't believe that because whys are only temporary. My son being brought into this world helped me sober up, but it didn't keep me there. And I'll explain that in here in just a bit. But it was March of 2010 where I sobered up. I'm like, all right, I got a reason to live. Let's redirect and reshift and get focused. And so with you know, several hundred dollars left in the bank, I started reaching out, networking, and secured a couple of six and seven figure contracts pretty quick, moved to Texas, and... I was working, uh, I remember vividly, I was working with Tyco Corporation and training their new homeowner division and their dealer franchise division. And if you've ever bought in a home in the last 10, 15 years, you know, in the first like 30 to 90 days, you get hit up by every ADT dealer and corporate across the country. You're welcome. That was mm. part of the program, <laughs> which is what led me into real estate. I, I realized there was so much more opportunity. People buy exponentially more in the first 90 days of them buying a home than they ever buy for their home ever. And so I, I running these statistics, found that to be true, partnered with Tyco, built out their dealer program. Um, and that brought me to Texas because for whatever reason, although we all have guns, we also all have alarms in our house too in Texas. I never did understand that. I never had an alarm up north, but here, one of the safest neighborhoods and communities, we all have guns and alarms. So um and cameras and everything else, booby traps on some of our houses, just saying. So don't come, don't come playing. I promise you, you don't want none of this. You don't want none. Uh, Jesus will leave and gangster will come out real quick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that intrigued me. And so then I started looking into real estate 
and in doing so got ingrained back into my work got the hand off the wheel the important wheel my kids my you know lady at the time my son's mom and she was dealing with some of those demons herself and here we are between mountaintops right got to learn a lesson got to get back in that valley i come home one friday afternoon a little early from the office and um my son's mom had od there's pills everywhere all over the floor here's my baby boy just a couple months old i'm devastated heartbroken devastated pissed off why now why again what are we doing and when I realized that she was still breathing and had a pulse, the gangster in me kicked in. And we, we say CYA, not just in the law enforcement, but also on the street, like cover your butt, right? Uh, I, I remember setting my boy back down in the chaos, taking pictures with my phone, packing a bag, calling the police and going to an, a, a hotel. And that Monday morning, I would start the fight of my life between the drama and losing contracts, the last couple hundred grand I had in the bank fighting for custody of my son, trying to disprove all of the stories of my past life because I'm not the same person. I was devastated and uh, ended up homeless, man. I ended up homeless, living in my car for close to a year and a half in total, but for about nine to 10 months or so, I was sleeping in my car. And I remember September 28, 2011, I'd been in my car a few months and I got mad at the world. I got mad at God. I got mad at the world. I wanted nothing to do with any sense of reality. And in that moment, I wrote a letter. I had just gotten off. The, this is the crazy part, Matt. I'd just gotten off the phone with my brother. And we were going to start a new business. Everything was going to be great. Within 20 minutes, I wrote my mom a letter, asked her if anything ever happened to me to take care of my son. And then I wrote my son a letter, just said I couldn't do it no more. And I pulled my car out from beneath the water tower and in the woods that I was sleeping in, out into the street, into the intersection, set the note on the dash Loaded one in the chamber of the 40 cal that sits next to my bed tonight. And I pulled the trigger. Not just once, but twice. Not just twice, three times. And in that moment, I realized that if I couldn't do what I had set out to do, that there must be purpose on this earth. And I didn't know what it looked like. I remember screaming at God. And, I, and if you're listening to this, I've got a shirt on that says, trust Jesus. Like for me, I came into a realization that there really is a God. There really is a man that named Jesus that walked the earth, performed more miracles than anybody could count on a hundred hands. And it was witnessed by hundreds of thousands of people in a lot of other religious beliefs even point back and validate it, say it's true and try to justify it with doctrine. And if that's the case with what I experienced, I need to pursue that. And so I gave God an ultimatum. And before, before and I told you him, the ultimatum, yeah. your early experience in life was with, as you pointed out, like a cult-like Christian perspective. Yeah. So how, 
how, like, was there any process of reconciling the Christianity you experienced in your youth and the experience you're having there while you're trying to commit suicide? Every day, every day because of the stories we tell ourselves, you know, I just posted on social media just recently a long, you know, post that I'll just summarize. It's like, you know, it's time to seek forgiveness. I mean, if you're reading this far, I'll, I'll just read it. It says, let me ask if you're ready. How long can you keep going the way you are? How long are you going to hold yourself back because someone hurt you? If that's the case, like it used to me, know this. That person is just that, a person, a human. So unless you're perfect and have never made mistakes, you should probably forgive them. I literally just posted this in social media um, a couple days ago, and it took me years to get over what I thought the story was in my head that here is this belief that I don't agree with even to this day, but there are humans that are pursuing and pushing and implying that that is the best way to be saved. And they're just human. They're only doing the best that they know how. That is their map. That is how they're identifying and looking through the lens of life. And so that's an everyday you know, process. I'm still seeing, oh, you know what? What about that? I need to forgive that. Or I need to look back and, and realize they had best intentions. I mean, you look at the worst of the worst, right? You look at Jeffrey Dahmer, right? It's a big craze as of recently, right? With the documentaries and the movie and all that. Because of his lens, because of his mental inabilities and, and instabilities, that was his best option or intent. He was doing what he felt, even though it's sick. And I'm not justifying or, or negating anything. Humans are geared to do what they feel is best with intention. But they're identifying that intention from the lens in which they see the world in. And so while the majority of us believe that that is wrong, sickos that do bad things believe that they're doing good. Totally. That is their lens. And I had to realize that in, in, in doing so, not only having compassion for the mentally unstable, but for the rest of us that are messed up because we're human too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Take, take me to the scene. So you're pulling the trigger. Your son's in the back seat. It, the, the gun jams. And so the bullet doesn't, doesn't go through your head. You immediately have this realization of faith. What was that? Was that a logical, rational thought that came into your mind? Was that an emotional experience? What was happening to you to come to that realization that faith was where you needed to turn? Yes, yes, and yes. All of that. Instantly, I knew that all of my beliefs were being challenged. Instantly, I knew that there was something greater. And instantly, I knew that it was him. All simultaneously. And I don't often share this, but you do the math on that timeline. My son was just barely a year old at that point. If you don't have kids, one-year-olds don't talk yet. They goo-goo-ga-ga, maybe a mama-dad-dad, that's about it. I heard his voice, the same voice that interrupted this podcast at the beginning of it that called me as a 12-year-old. I heard at one years old, and that voice was small and quiet, and it said, everything's going to be okay. And it scared the crap out of me, Matt. I turned around. I mean, you can 
like I get emotional thinking about this. I turned around and looked back and he was asleep. But now when I hear his voice every day, it's like, wait a minute, that was the same voice I heard back in September. Holy smokes. So, yeah, you know, because usually these experiences might be like, hey, I heard the voice of God, which obviously that might have been the case through him, but you heard it through your son's vocal. Yeah. And, and that's when I got mad. Like, how are you going to use him to change me? I got mad. You better show up as if that hadn't just been enough in the last like five minutes, right? I'm screaming, yelling, pissed off. And then I realize I'm in the middle of an intersection, like talking with God with a gun in my lap, like <laughs> I better move. And I remember like arguing this mental battle of like, well, if that's the case, what's next? If you're showing up, what's next? You better do something big to keep on proving that what you got to prove. And, and it's scary sometimes because depending on what pastor or religious person you talk to, they often tell you, oh, don't test God. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, test me so that I can show you that I am good. And that's what I did, not knowing what I was doing. And, and I'll never forget falling asleep after arguing and not necessarily vocally anymore, but just that internal that battle. Yeah. Yeah. The wrestling. Yeah. Like the word talks about just internal, like these evil and good spirits are just fighting. And I don't remember falling asleep, but I remember waking up and it was to a phone call from Wells Fargo. It showed up Wells Fargo on my phone. I remember that. Um, kind of like AT&T calling me right now. <laughs> it showed up Wells Fargo and I'm like, huh. I answered and they went through the on the verification, you know, verify your code or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I was skeptical and they're like, well, we need you to verify some transactions that you are who you are because there's some activity on your account that we are flagging as fraudulent. That's as much as we can give you. So what does that mean? Well, you need to go into a local branch. And I think that was a Thursday, the next day, I believe, uh, Thursday or Friday. And I remember going into this local branch here in North Texas and telling them, you know, hey, I just got this phone call. And uh, they sat me down and they, I remember them turning the monitor around so that I could see a, a litany of transactions. And, and mind you, I had 32 bucks to my name at that point. I don't know if I said that earlier. I had 32 bucks of cash in my pocket. I knew I had five to seven dollars in my account to keep it open. I was trying to keep it open. And I'm like, what else can go wrong? And they turn this screen around and I'm looking and I'm like, yep, that was me. That was last week. Yep, that was me. And there's a transaction for a deposit in the amount of $20,000. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I don't open that up. And, and we opened it up and I seen the merchant and I realized this is a former client of mine. I called them and I'm like, hey, what's going on? I'm at Wells Fargo. They flagged my account. Like, what is this transaction? Oh, we found an old invoice and we just sent you a wire. Now, maybe they had already planned that, but 
I like to look at God as he's pretty gangster. And most gangsters know that you always got to be looking ahead and around the corner at the same time. And this wasn't an invoice from like five days prior, right? I mean, no, this was an invoice from like eight, nine years prior. Jeez. Yeah, maybe, let's see, this was 2011. So this was probably, yeah, about seven years prior, roughly. They're just shuffling. Some assistant is shuffling through the papers and saying, hey, we haven't, yeah. which is crazy because taxes have been filed and reconciled for years. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was in that moment that I, I realized real quick that God had a sick sense of humor. <laughs> You know, hey, I think sometimes, I mean, look around, look at your neighbor, look at your friend, look at your siblings. I mean, God's got a pretty sick sense of humor. We all look uniquely different and some of us similar because he wants to play games and he can because he's God. And it's interesting. I remember walking out and just feeling that like enlightenment feeling that spiritualists talk about. And I'm like, all right, bro. I call, I call God, bro. Jesus is kind of gangster to me because sometimes he has to treat people differently and, and different expectations. And I walk out. I'm like, all right, bro, let's do this. And, and what does every good, good human know or good gangster do to celebrate? Like, we got to go have tacos. <laughs> like, I haven't had a good meal in a while, right? <laughs> so I, my boy and I, we go to a local taco shop, and it was not a good one. It was just the one that I had come accustomed to because they had cheap tacos on Tuesday. Um, I remember sitting there at the local taco shop and just smashing the biggest amount of tacos. Like, we had soft tacos and hard tacos. We made a taco salad. And we're just sitting in the window watching cars go by. And I don't know. It could have been two, three, four hours later, just sitting there. And I get another phone call. Mr. McKinley, we found an old application and we're wondering if you're still looking for a roof over your head. Come on, God, really? And sure enough, what is now changed to is something else. It was formerly known as the McKinney Orchid Apartments, a small little apartment complex in McKinney, Texas, not the greatest place to live. That night I had a roof over my head. I had food in my belly and cash in my pocket. And that's when God came real to me. That might not be the story for everyone, but I know that he's real. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of stories before me that have proven to others that he's real. And, and that's kind of where my journey kind of takes off and starts going up uh, from there. You know, I, I got into real estate. Uh, fast forward now, the last 10 years, I've closed over 10,000 real estate transactions, completely virtual, 100% virtual. I think as of last week, I've walked seven properties and over 10,000 transactions. I'm actually going to number eight this weekend to meet somebody in person to give him a check because I want to meet him in person because his life has literally changed in the last 90 days. It's been so cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and that doesn't mean that I'm at the peak of the mountain. There's a new mountaintop that I'm climbing, even right now as we're talking. While I've been blessed over here, I'm dealing with things right now that most people never dream of. And they're great problems and great lessons that I'm learning and they hurt. But I know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I know that I can wake up and push through 
and trust Jesus and get sharper on the other side of this storm. And, and so it's just been really cool to see this journey. I mean, heck, Matt, the house that I'm in, I bought at pennies on the dollar through the same way that I market for real estate. And the crazy part is like to add insult to injury, icing to the cake, the nail in the coffin, this subdivision wasn't even here 11 years ago. And wouldn't you know it? It was the same wooded area in which I used to park in the woods and hide out from when I slept at night because the single dad with the kid being homeless can't get shelter. And now I get to look out my window and look at the water tower every day that I once lived under. And the one that you tried to commit suicide under. Yeah. 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 So you have this experience, your faith becomes real to you. Give us more color. Give us more context on, I'm assuming it wasn't all like fresh air and roses when you got through. How, what was the process like of working through the fact that you were at a suicidal place and you had lost a lot of the momentum you had in business? Like, How did you get traction again and how, how did you get the ball rolling? Yeah, I think for me, it comes with collaboration. You know, I, I, I had always been a business consultant. I'd never owned my own thing. And so I didn't know or understand that, you know, I had always just come into organizations, hire and train sales teams, give them the, the blueprint and then out, set the expectation, do this and you'll have results. And so for me, some of the challenges that I've had over the last several years is, is just like everyone else. Like, what does it look like to start your own thing? But how are we going to do it successfully? And so I, I recently made an exit six years ago uh, from a partnership because when I first got started in real estate, I didn't have a clue. I just had a process, you know, and uh, I, I had done much more transactions in the first 90 days of real estate than most people ever do in, my, in a lifetime. And I didn't know that that was a big deal and I needed help. And I reached out to a couple small companies here in Dallas that were willing to like hire people. And I went through hiring process, got the job offer. And then I pitched them, you know, I don't want to work with you. I want to, or for you, I want to work with you and, and did the whole thing I used to do in the corporate world and got the contract. They weren't very happy. Let me just say they weren't happy at first. <laughs> they called me two weeks later. They're like, if you can do what you did previously, we'll make you a partner. We'll talk about it, whatever. But we grew that company to a, a nine-figure business. And then six years ago, as of the time of this recording, we parted ways. But I had only done that in collaboration. I only knew what I knew best, that sales aspect of it. One guy was handling marketing and administrative stuff. The other guy was handling the books and the back end. Like, I didn't know all the things. And so six years ago, you know, went on a hiatus, went and did some traveling picked up some speaking engagements, started talking about what we had done, didn't realize it was such a big deal. And then I come to find out real estate investors typically only do one to three deals a year, you know, and I'm like, we're doing 30 to 50, depending on the month, a month. So, so walk us in how you built that. Like, how did you, you know, what was the process? How did you get to 30 or 50 months so fast? So, I mean, it comes, it, it really boils down to people, processes and systems. You know, I have a process and 
when I can find, for me, what happened was when I take this process and plug it into the widget, in this case, being real estate, when I plug it into this widget, now I need to find the people that make it turn and then the systems that make it more efficient, right? That's my three-step process to getting a business from zero to hero or to scale. And take the process, put butts in seats, and then find systems to automate and, and make it more efficient. That It's as simple as that. And that's what we did. Um, we were, you know, started out cold calling cold leads to, you know, a couple deals closed and funded, reinvesting it back into marketing. Marketing creates leads. Leads create conversations, which creates contracts. Contracts means money. Money puts in more marketing, more marketing, more money, more systems. And then next thing you know, it's just this wheel and you're just managing the wheel or delegating that management of the wheel. And, and that's really what it boils down to. And so if this is all new to you, I'm hoping that you hear this from a place of, I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. I just simplify things. I don't know what your microprocesses are in your business, but if you simplify them to these three or four or five things and find people to do that, and then find systems to make their job easier, it's easy to scale. It's easy to scale. And so that's what we did uh, six years ago, made an exit from that company and then started all over two years ago. And that's kind of the storm that I'm in now, Matt, where, you know, well, it's been almost three years now. I started over and doing what we did before, but now I'm going to do it better and bigger. And I'm looking for strategic partners. And in doing so, I learned who, you know, who, who to trust and who not, who to delegate and what not to, things like that. These are new lessons that I'm even learning right now because I wasn't managing everything before. I just had my own thing. So been super blessed, you know, got, got rid of the cancer, got rid of a lot of bad eggs in my company over the last two, two and a half years. And heck, I joke recently, I've done more in the last four months than I have the last 24 months, you know, and, and it's the truth. You talked to me six months ago, I was whining and crying in my proverbial beer and I don't drink beer anymore, but I was whining and crying in it, you know, and, and now I realized the lesson, the obstacle that the shadow was being cast from was really just the lesson that I needed to learn. And that was these things that I previously mentioned. And so it's been really fun. It's been really fun. I'm learning new things about myself, my family, the tenacity of my 12 year old, the audacious, amazing wife that I've got. She's so smoking hot way out of my league. Like, you know, she's in pulmonary pediatrics and way smarter than I am. And I'm learning to sometimes you got to be a pessimist to see the optimism, you know, and vice versa. She's seeing my optimism from a pessimistic standpoint. And we just had that talk last night. It was so cool. Just like snuggled up on the floor, not even in bed, just snuggled up on the floor in our bedroom, just talking of our massive differences and how well they communicate and collaborate and yet how much they also conflict and how we can grow. It's so cool. And, and that all boils down to communication. Yeah. Communication in the lens in which we view things. If, you know, and, and this will be a nugget. Somebody will write this down. If you live life as if there's always another explanation, you can see the other side of the lens. And more importantly, if you're able to share that perspective, somebody else on the outside can help you identify the label on the outside of your jar. And it creates win-win solutions all day. That's all day. incredible. So this success started leading to all sorts of connections. I mean, you've spoken on the stages of Grant Cardone and a number of others. Can you give us some insight into how you were leveraging your 
your real estate success to become a speaker and to become you know, super well-known? Yeah, so two things. One, never spoke on stage with Grant Cardone. Uh, just want to make sure that we're clear on that. Love you, Uncle G. But you and your wife and I are business partners, not you. <laughs> so Elena and I have have a business together and have done some really cool stuff together. His wife, uh, just because we are both in two different lanes. And, and so not that, that we wouldn't work together, but I've never spoke on the same stage with him. We've been in the same room and done some things together. But uh, uh, yeah, I've just been super blessed, you know, from being on stage at uh, Thrive with Cole Hatter and being a part of that and, and presenting at, uh, you know, some massive, massive masterminds of 10, 15, 20,000 as the keynote. I've got a big one coming up. I don't know if you've heard of it, the World Economic Forum, like one of the biggest venues in the world in front of the most prestigious, wealthiest, sometimes looked at as like, the wrong side of the track in the business world. I don't know, whatever your beliefs are. I'm just there to love on people and show Jesus through me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been blessed to speak on some of the coolest stages in the world. And, you know, I'm learning more and more daily that as I share my story, as I'm honest with God and myself, sometimes you got to give God the middle finger for him to be like, yeah, it's all right. It's tough. I got you. Um, and not in a disrespectful way by any means. I mean, even Job cried out and, you know, cursed at him like, why me? You know, just be real with them. Be honest with them. I'm learning that as I'm honest with God and growing my business and sharing my gifts, that anything's possible. Anything's possible. And I've been blessed to speak, you know, uh, twice. I, I've been in the room and hired by some of the greatest minds in the world, Tony Robbins and Russell Brunson. And gosh, the, the list goes on. I, I've just been super blessed. I did an event with Dr. Eric Thomas, um, Naveen Jain, Dr. Alex Mir, Ty Lopez. And the lesson that I've been learning through all of this is just to be genuine and authentic. Don't care what anybody thinks and don't do it for the things that you can't take with you, which is everything. You know, they don't teach us. This has been the, I'll share this with you, Matt. The biggest lesson that I've learned um, this last week has been this. And that is we often learn how to live, right? Eat right, work out, build a business, do this, do this, check this box, check that box, don't do this, do this. But how often are we taught to die? Because when we die, we can't take this shirt, this car. I mean, I've gotten kind of crazy radical with it. Call me nuts. I don't know, but my son's done more than most ever do in a lifetime. And... Uh, how how does your expression of your faith help serve you? And I know you don't do it for business because you do it for yourself. You do it because it's real to you. But has it presented obstacles and roadblocks in your in your way or has it propelled you? Yes and yes. You know, there have been obstacles. You know, I think that there's a stigma of like if you share your faith, that you're like, feel you're holier than thou. And I'm going to tell you right now, I cuss a little bit. I make mistakes. I mean, 
I, I recently had a conversation with a pastor. He's like, bro, if you knew what kind of comedy shows I like to watch, because I like to laugh at sick humor, yeah, I wouldn't be your friend or pastor. You know? And and it's like that's that's what being real is about. And so for me, there has been those stigmas, you know. If I share my faith and you think that I, I'm holier than thou, that's not me, that's you. That's your story. That's because someone hurt you and you haven't let it go. And when you let that go, you could stand boldly on the beliefs and foundations that you do have, whether that's the same as me or not. Do I care about it? Absolutely, I do. But I'm not going to be upset if you don't like me. You know, the word says, and whether you believe in the Bible or not, you can't deny that it's the best-selling book of all time. All of the reports say it, and it always has been, and I believe that it always will be. And if that's the case, read it from that like agnostic standpoint for the nuggets in it. I mean, King Solomon, wealthiest man of all time, still to this date, if we took his money and put it today, still the wealthiest guy in the world of all time. He's got a whole book and several chapters written about him and his wisdom and his Proverbs and how he lived his life. Like, go study that. One thing that I've learned through all of this, Matt, is this, that in sharing your faith, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. If you don't do it from a place of love and you're doing it from a place of doctrine, like these people need to hear this and it's going to just shove down your throat. I did my work. You're going to turn more people away than you are going to attract. It's the same thing in business, right? In business, we're often told that, uh, what is it? We can attract more with honey. Like, what's that saying, right? Yeah. You, know what, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. uh, that same thing applies when you're looking at your faith and your belief. Like, you you and I may not resonate. I'm pretty high strung and pretty pretty passionate. But I still love you. I mean, I don't even know some days how my wife puts up with me. <laughs> We are complete polar opposites. I mean, she's a 12 out of 10 and she's, you know, Asian descent. I'm Caucasian. I'm 6'5". She's 4'11". Like we are opposites on everything. All the stereotypes, that's her. She got good grades. She went to school. She got five degrees. All her and her sisters are doctors. Like here I am, this hood rat gangster from Chicago that just loves people and does real estate and talks about it. Two worlds apart. The reason it works, the reason we can come together and have those conversations on the floor, even when it's difficult and we get to hang out with each other like we did last night, right in the middle of a storm that we're going through, is because we know how to die. We know that when we die tomorrow, even if we left nothing for our kids, that our soul, the thing that is going to last forever, is going to be in eternity with our creator. And that's something that I'm comfortable with. Not that I'm being selfish. No, I, I, I hope that I taught my son. Well, I mean, he's 12 and he's raising million. He's raised millions of dollars. I think he'll be all right. If I don't leave him anything, he'll be all right. But most importantly, I showed him what discipline, correction and love looks like from a perspective of God. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning. So. Incredible. Bryce McKinley, thank you so much for sharing your story, for, for walking us through the mountains and the valleys, for sharing what's important, for not holding back. I so appreciate it.
And so guys, if you're listening and you're in a valley right now and you're at a place where maybe you're thinking about taking your life or you're at a place where you're just not liking where you're at, keep pushing, keep focusing for, for obviously for Bryce, it was finding his faith, finding his purpose. So write down something that you learned from this episode or something that you want to take away. If you want to reach out to us, reach out to us so we can get you some answers, but write something down so you can progress in your life and your business because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And by taking action, you begin taking the steps before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode.